This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus chapter 34. When we planted the Trails Church nearly five years ago, we made it our practice to preach through the Bible expositionally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, the way that Christians have long studied Scripture together. Our rhythm is to go back and forth between the New Testament and the Old Testament so that we have a balanced diet of God's Word. In addition to this, we also purposefully cover different literary genres of the Bible. If you're new to Christianity, let me explain what that means. You see, the Bible is one book consisting of 66 different books telling one story of God's great salvation in Jesus Christ. This news is so wonderful, it can't be told in just one literary genre, but it includes narrative, history, poetry, epistles, which are letters written, prophecy, and gospels, all written by God through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through men, so that we might know Him. The first book that we studied as a brand new church plant was the New Testament epistle written by the Apostle Paul called Philippians. Then we turned to the Old Testament book of Ruth, which is a narrative. Um, Next, we explored the New Testament gospel of Matthew. Every summer, our tradition has been to return to the book of Psalms, which is in the Old Testament. It's a book of poetry, of wisdom. Well, today we reach the end of our journey through the second book in the Old Testament, known as Exodus, a journey that we began on August the 15th, 2018. No, no, 2021. 2021. Exodus is a narrative. It is the story in the Old Testament of how the Lord redeemed His people, filled with unexpected scenes, unforgettable truths, And one unequaled God. We read accounts of a baby saved by death by a basket. Saved from death by a basket. The word in Hebrew is the same as ark. That makes us think back to the book of Genesis. We read of a burning bush that was never consumed. Locust swarming plagues. An angel of death. Manna from the sky. Water from a rock. A moving pillar of cloud and fire. The Ten Commandments, the tabernacle instructions, remarkable accounts. Yet, while each of these play a vital role in the narrative, they were actually never the main point, were they? And as often as we've investigated Israel and mentioned Moses, they are not the main point either. The primary point has been God making Himself known. This is his story, this history. God is the main character of the story of Exodus. My question is, what have you learned about God in this study of his word? 
And even if this is maybe your first time with us, I pray you'll be able to answer that question by the time we reach the conclusion of the service. What have you learned about God in this study of His Word? In the final scenes of Exodus, we find a spectacular crescendo where God's name is proclaimed, His covenant is renewed, and His glory seen like never before. Here we see a glimpse into the heart of God as to why He redeemed His people in the first place and saved them so that He might be the God that they know, that they might enjoy the promises that He made and live in response to His glorious presence. In this capstone sermon, what I'd like to do is rehearse three truths about the Lord seen throughout our study, and we also see here in this passage that I pray we never forget. That Yahweh is first the God who redeems, second, the God of covenant, and third, the God of glory. We have our heading. Would you stand with me as we read now from God's word? We're going to read chapters 34, 35, 36, 37, 38, 39, and 40. No, no, uh, just the first 10 verses of chapter 34 for now. Exodus 34, 1 to 10. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain." So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped and said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go out in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he, God, said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Yay. The first truth we learn from our passage is that our God is the God who redeems. Exodus 34, 1-9. The chapter begins as the Lord gives Moses careful attention as to a meeting between them that is now arranged. 
once preparations have been made, Moses ascends to the top of the mountain as God condescends from on high to meet him once again. The dialogue opens with one of the most spectacular statements of God's self-disclosure in all of Scripture. A list of attributes is arranged that we've had the privilege of witnessing throughout the book. Before we catalog these characteristics, we're met with the name of God being spoken twice in verse 6. The Lord, the Lord. We've learned that when we see these all caps version, notice how it's all caps in your Bible. This version of the Lord is indicating the proper name of God, which we learned back in Exodus chapter 3. Yahweh, Yahweh. So let me remind you, it was at this same mountain, months before, that God declared his identity, his history with Israel, and his name. He did so in order to put into action the plan of redemption that was grounded in who he is, the God of compassion and justice. Now the book of Exodus is driving toward its climax on those same tracks, as the great revelation with which it began, who Yahweh, the God of Israel, is, what God is like, and what God characteristically does. So, who God is, what God is like, and what God characteristically does. So, who is He? Yahweh. What is He like? I'm glad you asked. Now that it's clear, who is making these statements, let's ask God himself to teach us through the language used in these verses to see what he is like. First, we find that our God is merciful and gracious. And of course, we've seen this. Do you remember back in Exodus 2 when Israel was trapped in slavery? The Lord was merciful and gracious to them. He heard their groaning for deliverance. He saw their burden too heavy to bear. He remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He knew the suffering of his people. He knew intimately his people and every tear they shed. And in his mercy and grace, he redeemed them and set them free. Our God is merciful and gracious Also, our God is slow to anger. As we pause and consider the immediate context for this attribute, remember just on the heels of the golden calf incident in chapters 32 through 34, Israel had been quick to break their covenant with God. And yet here we find that he is slow to anger toward his chosen people. The Hebrew phrase for this is not polite. It's the phrase, long in the nostrils. That's not a good phrase. But that's what it says. That's the original Hebrew. That's what it says here. That God is long in the nostrils. Well, what in the world does that mean? Like Pinocchio? I don't know what's... No, none of that. What this is getting at is, you know how when someone's nostrils were flare when they're angry? What this is saying is it takes God's nostrils a long time to flare up. That he is patient. And haven't we seen that? God has shown incredible patience toward his wandering, grumbling people. 
We also learn that our God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. These words are often paired together in Scripture to help us just begin to realize the nature of God's covenant love toward His people. The strength that it possesses, His chesed, His loving kindness, His covenant love toward His people. It's based not on who they are, but based on who He is. And here we find this this whole equation first mentioned in the Bible that becomes a pattern of describing what God is like when you take it back and, and take it all in. And following this proclamation of who God is, there are three verbs that summarize how God characteristically operates in the world. First, keeping. Keeping. The Lord keeps steadfast love to thousands. Now, that's not just thousands of people. There's close to a thousand people maybe in this cafeteria today. Uh, no, not just a thousand, just a thousand people, but to thousands of generations. Okay, it's not just to one, you know, hang on to that thought, you'll need it in just a moment. It's not that God just keeps steadfast love toward thousands of people, but to thousands of generations of his covenant people. So he's keeping. Second, forgiving. The Lord forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Three different terms are used here to just blanket all the ways that God's people can mess up, break his law and command. And at the heart of it, we're reminded that the Lord is the forgiving God. One commentator said that we're looking at the most important statement on forgiveness in the whole Old Testament because it begins with God having forgiven us. The God who is merciful, gracious, is forgiving toward us in our sin. And then visiting is the third verb, visiting. And finally, we see that the God of mercy and grace and love is also the God of perfect justice. And didn't we see this in the ten plagues? As the perfect justice of God was poured out on Pharaoh, His perfect wrath was poured out on the Egyptians. We cannot allow the second part of this description to eliminate the first. Yahweh is the God who punishes and forgives. He is the God of wrath and grace. Remember I said hold on to that thought about how His grace extends to thousands of generations? Notice this. This is not like a curse that hangs over a family. Like, so, Dad, if you sin, that doesn't mean your great, great, great grandkids will pay the price for your sin. We've seen that people pay their, for their own sins. That's how it works with the, the Lord. What this is doing is contrasting um, the, the, the severity yet brevity of his wrath and the strength and uh, durability of his steadfast love toward his people. Thousands of generations, not just a few generations as punishment goes but the God of grace for thousands of generations. And then as we rehearse all these characteristics, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and rich in love, keeping covenant, forgiving sins, visiting his enemies with perfect justice. I mean, it's just a lot to take in, right? The only, the only sort of response that seems fitting, I think, is, takes us back to Exodus 15. When we read together, after God had delivered his people as they danced through the, the dry bed of the ocean floor, as the waters were parted on both sides into freedom, what is the first thing they did? They sang. Moses led them in the song of the sea. 
And at the heart of that is this question, who is like the Lord? Who is like him? And of course, the answer is no one at all. So Christian, haven't you known this about God? Haven't you known the Lord to be merciful to you? Gracious to you? In the way that he saved you? In the way that he brought you out of the slavery of sin? And into the freedom that only Christ provides? Even now, recall how long-suffering he has been to you. How patient in all of your wondering and grumbling. We've turned aside time and time again, just like Israel did in Exodus 32. Yet, he forgives. He doesn't retract his love from you. He doesn't hold back himself from you. But reaches into your darkness and shines light, reaches into your death and brings life. He's the God who redeems. I got an email from a friend this week. We weren't even talking about this passage, but he just said, I I think the problem with Israel again and again through the Old Testament is they stopped singing the song of Moses in Exodus 15. They just stopped singing it. What did he mean? Well, that song reminded Israel of who they were. And whose they were. The people that God had redeemed. What he had done in their lives. So one just quick application for you and me. Let us not stop believing and speaking of and singing of the goodness of God toward us. He is the God who redeems. The second truth we've learned is that our God is the God of covenant. Look with me again at chapter 34 verse 10. And really with the rehearsal of what happens here, it stretches all the way to chapter 40, verse 33. But let me just read this one verse. God says, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The Lord's statement is no small thing. You'll recall how after the Ten Commandments were thundered from Mount Sinai and the Book of the Covenant had been written and given, read to all of Israel, they replied in chapter 24, verse 7, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Do you remember when they said that? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And they said, and we will be obedient. Yet while the ink is still wet, On the covenant, at the first opportunity, they disobeyed God. They worshipped a false idol and broke the promise they had made. Yet, the Lord, who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, upholds the covenant on his own for a people who never could hold up to their part. He he repeats, I am still making a covenant with you. It's not a new covenant he has in mind. It's not a revised covenant with an amended prenup. This is a renewing of vows that Israel had broken. Even the reference to marvels here makes it the same word used of the plagues that were poured out on Egypt. 
And the Lord says, I'm going to do marvels in your midst, things that you have not even seen yet. And of course, we see those in the books that follow Exodus in the story of Scripture. But what follows here in chapter 34, 11 to 28, is a summary of multiple things pulled from various sections that we've seen throughout Exodus, like the Passover, verses 18 to 20, and verse 25. The Ten Commandments are mentioned, verse 14, 17, 21. The Book of the Covenant, verses 22 to 24. But in the end, what we see is that here at Sinai, once again, God makes a covenant with his people. And I want to pause right there and make some comments on why we are now seemingly skipping over chapters 35, 36, 37, 38, and 39. By the way, let me just make this little caveat. We won't always preach verse by verse through every book of the Bible. Okay, you can read First Chronicles this afternoon and see why that's true. <laughs> we'll preach it different ways. We just want to get to all of it before we die. That's the hope. Uh, I've mentioned this before, but I want to make sure you see it. Because whenever the Lord repeats himself, we should take care to listen. And I cannot overestimate what the tabernacle represented to Israel. The presence of God dwelling in their midst. To put it in perspective, Scripture spends two chapters detailing how God made the heavens and the earth, and yet 13 chapters on the blueprints and construction of a portable church in the desert. It's significant, it matters. These chapters first record the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. That's chapters 25 to 31. And then that story is interrupted by Exodus 32 through 34 with the golden calf incident. And then it's as if the Lord just picks up right where he left off in chapter 35 all the way to the end of 40. So 25 through 31, we have instructions. 35 to 40, construction. So instructions, construction. There's a chart that we've provided on the back of your bulletin that shows where the instructions for each part of the tabernacle are found, followed by the corresponding place where that part is built. So I hope you find that helpful. Here's what I want you to see. The detailed repetition is intentional. And here's what God's saying. In this moment, in this snapshot... Everything that God said to do, the people did. Every detail that God had outlined in the blueprints, Israel saw that to completion. I want to take this opportunity just to one more time remind you of something that we've said multiple times over the last couple of years. This is a covenant of grace, not a covenant of works. God is making with his people. It's a covenant of grace. The Lord does not look at Israel while they are still enslaved by Egypt and say, hey kids, if you'll obey me for six months, a year, then I will redeem you and save you from your situation. That's not what happens. Anybody read that story? That story is not here. Instead, God, out of grace reaches into the darkness of Israel's situation and redeems them 
through the blood of a spotless lamb. That's what happened at the Passover. And then saves them through the parting of the Red Sea. So there's the gospel. There's the good news of how God has redeemed and saved his people. And now the word of God is given to them in order to teach them how to live. You see that? Why does that matter? Because a lot of people, even in our culture, this is your coworkers, they might pick up the Bible and think, if I just do these things that it says, if I do them really well, if I don't mess up enough, maybe the God of the Bible will forgive me. Maybe in the end, I'll even make it into heaven because I did most of the things that it says. That's how people read the Bible. That's not how the Bible is meant to be read. No, what the Bible does, again, is point us to the story of the God who, out of love, created all things. All things, including you. But back in the Garden of Eden, our first parents, Adam and Eve, turned from the Word of God and started to believe a lie instead of His voice. And so there you have the fall of all mankind. So now we're not born in right relationship with God. We're born separated from Him, sinners in need of a Savior. But God looked upon our condition, your condition, and in the fullness of time sent his one and only son to take on flesh, to tabernacle among us, and to live a perfect life of perfect obedience to the word of God in place of people who never could, and then died a death that you and I deserved, to be punished for our own sin, to receive the just punishment of our sin. But as Jesus hung upon the cross, What was laid upon him was the judgment and justice that was meant for us. And he absorbed the wrath of God in full. And so now the only thing left to do is to reach out your hand and take the gift of salvation that is freely offered. To receive by faith salvation and forgiveness of your sins that comes only through Jesus. To repent, come clean before God, say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the things that I've done. And the God of redemption will be your God. The Christ who has secured the everlasting covenant will be yours. Even today, that can be you. That you walk in with a burden of sin, Did you walk in knowing you do not know God because you're separated from him? Today could quite possibly be the day of your salvation. I pray it is. The final truth we learn about our God is he is the God of glory. Verses 40, or chapter 40, verses 34 to 38. And so, just to recap, the covenant is now renewed. The tabernacle is built. But there's one thing missing, isn't there? The whole purpose of the Exodus was so that God would dwell among his people in a tent, just like they were living. And now everything is set in place. The earlier part of chapter 40 tells us how Moses is scurrying about setting up the tabernacle, um, the Ark of the Covenant, and the testimony being placed, and the golden table, the lampstand, the altar. He's hanging the curtains and placing the basin, uh, everything in its right place. The way it's detailed makes me think of Joanna Gaines. Don't you know, at the end of Fixer Upper, which uh, many husbands in the room have been forced to watch, 
You know at the end of Fixer Upper where the camera goes outside the house and it's looking through the window and Joanna's just like scurrying about the house, putting all the, she's like adjusting a picture frame, showing I've been doing some stuff here. And then her children show up with handcrafted artisan cookies. And it's like, my kids have never brought me handcrafted artisan cookies. Um, Back to the story. Uh, Moses is moving around, getting everything in its right place. And then verses 34 to 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up, From over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. In the sight of all, the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And just like that, our journey comes to an end. Isn't it interesting how quick the whole thing stops? Moses finishes the work, and the Lord comes. There's actually not even a word between verses 33 and 34. The ESV adds the word then to help separate the ideas. You could rightly translate this passage, no sooner had Moses finished getting the tabernacle set than the glory of God settled on it. Why? Because God always keeps his promise. There are two words I want to leave you with as we conclude. Two words that help summarize really this entire book. The first is nearness. God drew near to the plight of his people. God drew near, led them out of slavery. He drew near with his presence, going before them, carrying them with each step through the desert. He drew near to them at Mount Sinai as they heard his very voice ringing through the air. And now God has drawn nearer than ever, even dwelling in the midst. The tabernacle is the answer to the question, how does a holy God live in the presence of an unholy people? Which leads to the second word, holiness. Nearness and holiness. Did you notice there's one glaring reality of this scene that we should not be quick to overlook? Even Moses can't enter the tabernacle that day. The glory of the Lord is too heavy in the air. Why can't Moses enter? Because even for Moses, something would be required. A sacrifice for him to enter the presence of God. And that important detail reminds us that we're still waiting. The the promise that is whispered in Genesis 3.15 of the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. Moses was a part of that fulfillment in the overthrow of Pharaoh 
but he still wasn't perfect enough to enter the presence of God. No, he would still point us to another one to come who would be both sacrifice and high priest. We spent uh, quite a bit of time going through the Gospel of Matthew. And as we did, I kept seeing the book of Exodus and themes from it in the Gospel of Matthew. And I want to just tie together a few of those for you to see how the book of Exodus foreshadows what uh, the Apostle Matthew writes in his telling of the good news of Jesus. Like Moses, Jesus was born to be a savior and rescued from his enemies at birth. At the start of Exodus, God calls the Israelites my firstborn son, Exodus 4.22. The Gospel of Matthew starts also with the voice of the Father saying, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, Matthew 3.17. Israel is threatened by a murderous dictator who calls for the death of male infants just as Herod did in the time of Christ. Like his forebears, Jesus also made the trip to Egypt to escape this oppression. Israel then left Egypt, passing through the Red Sea and marched straight into the wilderness. After Jesus left Egypt, he passed through the water of baptism and goes into the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4. Israel feels the hunger pains and thirst in the wilderness like Jesus experiences 40 days of fasting where he hungered and thirsted. Alec Mateer, um, an Irish scholar, says, Exodus is a story of the Son of God who stands in need of salvation, failing at every point, even of privilege. Matthew tells of the Son of God who brings salvation, perfect and righteous at every point and in every circumstance and test. We've seen how God delivering his people from Egypt was a shadow of how he would eventually redeem and save you and me from all our sin through the blood of a spotless lamb and through the salvation that only God could provide. Even 15 years before his birth, we've seen in the pages of this Old Testament book, I pray you've seen it, the glory of Christ on every page. Christ, the true and better Moses, called to lead a people home, standing bold to earthly powers. God's great glory to be known. With his arms stretched wide to heaven, see the waters part in two, see the veil, the veil that separated us from God's presence, torn forever you and me cleanse with blood pass on through into the very presence of God the story of Exodus is not self-contained it doesn't begin in chapter 1 it doesn't end in chapter 40 we saw it began in the book of Genesis and it carries on to this very day I, I pray by God's grace that we have seen together the God who redeems with fresh vision that the gospel of Exodus is clear to us. That in this study, we've seen the God who redeems his people for the purpose of serving him and knowing him. That the God of covenant, whose every promise made is a promise kept. In the gospel of Exodus, we've seen the glory of God 
who in great grace would come to dwell among his people. So you and I, this Exodus people, let us live in the salvation that God has given to us and let us follow the God who redeems. Trust and remember the God of covenant and live our lives as an expression of worship to the God of glory. Let's pray for his help. Father, thank you for your word, for every bit of it. Thank you for how this book has taught us who you are, what you are like, and what you've come to do. Let this good news ring in our hearts, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.